Hello and welcome to It's All Relative, the podcast that shines a light on the generation gap by interviewing two different generations of the same family. I'm your host, historian and writer, Dr. Eliza Philby, and I'm sad to say that this is the final episode of season one. Fear not though, season two will be launching early in the new year. Today we have joining us a Gen X father and a Gen Z daughter who are not only flying the flag for Wales in this series, they are our first Welsh guests, but their careers crisscross sport, music, fashion and film. Now you could describe Johnny Owen as a polymath, a renaissance man for our times. He is a producer, actor, writer and radio host and let's not fail to mention his early stint as a musician when he was a bassist in an indie band back in the 90s. Johnny has appeared in cult classics such as Shameless and Svengali. He won a BAFTA for his documentary on the Aberfan disaster and has since directed three football documentaries, the latest of which, The Three Kings, tells the story of three men from the south of Glasgow who turned out to be some of the most influential figures in football history. His 2015 film, I Believe in Miracles, chronicled the flawed but not forgotten genius of Notts Forest manager Brian Clough. As a result of that film, Johnny was appointed a director at Nottingham Forest Football Club in charge of their media output. He also writes a regular column in The Times and co-hosts a weekly show on TalkSport covering sport, film and culture. Joining Johnny today is his daughter, DJ, presenter and model, Katie Owen. Katie may be in her early 20s, but she is already making a name for herself as a DJ, supporting the likes of Kasabian and Madness on tour, but also as a presenter interviewing backstage at the Isle of Wight and the Why Not Festivals. In 2019, Katie was selected out of thousands to present a Radio 1 slot over Christmas, and she can currently be heard on her weekly residency at Boogaloo Radio, where she presents alongside the likes of Oasis legend Alan McGee. Katie has also dabbled in modelling and in 2019 was the face of Scott's menswear summer campaign. They share a love of music and the Welsh Valleys, but what else do they have in common? Let's find out. Katie and Johnny, welcome to It's All Relative. So... Johnny, wonder if we could start with your Welsh upbringing in Merth Tidville. You know, it runs through so much of your work, particularly the importance of football and, and working class culture. Yeah, I was born and brought up in a town called Merth Tidville, which was a traditional mining town in the, the coalfield of South Wales, really, called the Valleys. Uh, and again, it was a very traditional upbringing. My father worked in heavy industry. He was an electrician underground in the steelworks. My grandfather on my mother's side. He also worked underground, and I had a big extended family, lots of cousins. Uh, the school was just down the road, a post office, every cliche you can think of, really. Um, but I loved it. You know, I really enjoyed it. There was a closeness there. You know, the community was still very, very strong, and all the cliches about the door being on the latch and all those kind of things were all true in South Wales at that point. My grandparents lived really close and were at our house every day. So, yeah, I think that's why it's so important to me, really. And, and you mentioned football Everywhere seemed to be obsessed by sport. I still are. You know, there was boxing clubs and football clubs and all sorts. So I was always playing football or watching football. And I loved it, really. I was very lucky, I think, to come from that area of the world at that time. Mm-hmm. And, and Katie, I wondered how you could contrast your upbringing, perhaps, with your father's. So mine was quite similar, you know, very tight-knit community, tight-knit family. And, um, everyone knows each other. Um, but my dad moved to London when I was 12. And I remember I'd grow up on the weekends and I'd get the train up on my own and it was like a whole new world. And I always remember saying to him, 
oh, one day I'm going to live here. And, and here I am. <laughs> that must have been quite a contrast, you know, the, the bright lights, uh, big city of London contrasted with the, the Welsh Valleys. I was quite interested because she used to love going to the uh, vintage shops and things like that. You know, I'd sit outside for like 20 minutes when she'd like go through all the coats and things. And uh, <laughs> and you really enjoyed sort of going to sort of record shops and things like that. You the market, yeah. museums. It was very interesting that she first sort of few times she came to London, she said, I really like this place. You know, I, I want to come here one day. And that was one of the things about Kate that really impressed me. Really, When she did move to London when she was 18, 19, um, I, I remember thinking I wouldn't have been able to move to London at that age. Sounds a really odd thing to say, but I probably wasn't ready coming from South Wales at that time. I was a bit intimidated by London. And maybe the fact that she'd been going up there because I was living up there then allowed you to sort of like get used to that world. Yeah, like the tubes and, and all the... Did you... So you moved to London when you were 18. How did you... Did you rent a flat? What did you do? Or did you live with your dad? So I lived with my uncle, Uncle Robin, for about a month and then I saved up enough money to like um rent a flat so I moved in with some friends that I made in London so I'm gonna moved in with these two random girls became best mates and I've been here ever since. Johnny could you describe how particularly um the Abavan disaster touched your community and particularly your family because I I'm I remember thinking reading there was a family connection there. For those that don't know, of course, Abavan disaster, obviously most recently documented in The Crown, and it, it killed 116 children, I think, and 28 adults. That's right. It was, it was a coal tip. Um, South Wales is unusual. It's the only mountainous coal region in Western Europe, and they left the coal tips, what they called slag tips at the time, which is the, the waste from the colliery on the sides of mountains. And they left this one, and it had built up over many decades, and it was on a spring, a natural spring. And unfortunately, it rained badly for that few weeks and the tip moved and slid down onto the school and streets in the local village, um, killing a lot, tragically, a lot of children. And my father was working in the pit, as I said. So he was one of the first people on the on the scene, really. And when I was doing the documentary, I was going through the footage and I seen him. I thought, oh, there he is. Really? I, I, I took, yeah, I took the video. It was a VHS at the time. And I went home and I said, you know, who's that dad? And he was like, yeah, that's me there. It was quite a remarkable thing. And um, my primary school headmaster, a lovely man called Mr. Tudor, who um, helped me with the documentary, he lost his son, his only son, tragically, Randolph, in the oh, uh, in the disaster. So, yeah, a lot of connections, really, to the to the area. It's not a particularly big town, Merthyr. It's about 50,000 people, and Aberfan is, is a village of a few thousand, a pit village just outside Merthyr. Wow, gosh. It seems that, um, Johnny, you're, you're particularly drawn to telling the stories of perhaps previous generations. And in, in the Katie, I would say the same about you. You're particularly drawn to music of sort of previous generations, aren't you? Could you Katie, could you kind of talk a little bit about um, how your music tastes have been shaped by your father's? <laughs> so it's quite funny, like every every car journey. So my grandfather, the one, um, Grandpa Brian, he was the one who, in the, who dug the children out in the Abbey Minor disaster, and he'd pick me up and then drive to Murphy, and he'd play Frank Sinatra in the car yeah. every single time, there and back. Every single Frank Sinatra. Can't listen to him now. If I listen to him now, I'm like. And then my dad would play like Kasabian, The Beatles, Oasis. So they were like educational kind of car journeys for me. I'd listen to and absorb all this new music and just be like, wow. And do you see yourself as a kind of retro girl? I mean, is your sort of music heart very much in the 60s, 70s, 80s, maybe 90s as well, but rather than kind of embracing contemporary music? I do, do love all genres of music, but I feel like my heart is predominantly with my 60s, you know, the Beatles, the Kinks, the Who, 
um, and my nineties. It's quite interesting. Though, it's really quite, really quite. That's what made it quite unique, really. Like it was when I think when he was twenty and he first had a DJ, and it was it was quite odd. Mates of mine to say to me, "She's played a Northern Soul set, and she really knows the knows the genre." And I'd be going, "Yeah, I used to play it to her when she's younger." All in the car. It's all in the car. <laughs> so it's like, I think it was a bit odd. This little blonde Welsh girl would turn up and go like, "Oh, do you want some sixties garage music?" And like, yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah, play it. So yeah, it's interesting. Johnny, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about football um, and where you think the place of football in community has changed in your lifetime, I guess. Yeah, well, it's a great question. I talk about it, we talk about it this weekend. It's just more money. You know, the rich clubs have got spectacularly rich. I mean, there were always big football clubs when I was growing up. There was always Manchester United and Liverpool. But those clubs are Leviathans now. They're corporations, really. You know, they're worth billions of pounds, their turnover. So the game has become much more commercialised because of TV rights and all those things. It's got a much wider profile. Obviously, the women's game, becoming enormously popular which is brilliant so it's just changed i think it was a, a, a sport very rooted in a, in a working class experience you know you went three o'clock on a saturday you stood on a terrace you know i remember the smell of cigarette smoke and pies and bovril whereas now it's a completely different experience now you can go there and you can have a a la carte meal you know and you've got a nice seat and all those kind of things and what, so what's been lost do you think in that process well there's definitely something been lost in the sense that like Ordinary people can get priced out. You know, Liverpool is a great example for that. You know, the, the people of Anfield find it quite expensive for arguments in a very poor area of Western Europe. And, and Liverpool have got a wonderful supporters base who are trying to flag this up and say, look, you know, you need to get local kids, you know, to watch Liverpool because that's what, was, what it was built on the last 20, 30 years, or 40, 50 years. And once you start pricing out local people, I always think that's a problem then, you know, because the people that may made that club that gave it its very distinctive character if they don't go anymore then the club loses something mm. i mean obviously that that idea of 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 place and club is has been taken over by the sort of internationalization and, and like you say the commercialization of football particularly the premier league but do you think you know there's still the local club there's still the the sense of community built around particularly smaller clubs is still there yeah absolutely Absolutely, Eliza. I mean, for argument's sake, me and Katie are DJing at Merthyr Town Football Club on Boxing Day with my partner, Vicky McClure of Line of Duty, Katie's partner is Dylan John Thomas, the singer. We're doing a DJ set that's raising money for the local club, for Merthyr Town, because it's a non-league club. But the work it does in the community is, is phenomenal. You know, they do uh, girls' football right to the week. They've got a pitch that's in constant use, a 3G pitch. They do local work in the community. They organise food banks. So the football club in Merth, it is much, much more than just a football club. It's actually a place that people can go and, you know, go there with... The thing about football was this, that we all noticed. During the lockdown, people couldn't go and watch football. And it wasn't just that. People realised how important football can be for mental health because you go along, you socialise with people, you... Yeah, absolutely. Family and friends. Family and friends. And and everybody realised how important that was. This very famous saying, football is nothing without fans, became really true during, during COVID. So I think, you know, football clubs are just such a huge part of a community, somewhere like Merthyr Town. They're the heart of the town, really. It's right in the middle of town. Everybody goes there, and it does much more than football. Then, um, for two people that come from a very small community, in a sense, and has a secure sense of place, do you feel dislocated from where you grew up? Or do you feel, you know, do you romanticise it because you're no longer there? I feel like you do romanticise it a bit because you look back and think of these fond memories, and you kind of, like tell the stories of where you're from and like all the characters from back home yeah and i always love going back like to see everyone and it's 
Yeah, you do. I do. There's a Welsh word, Eliza. It's, uh, it's called hiraith, and it, it there's no translation in, in English, but it basically means longing for a lost homeland. <laughs> and apparently wow. it's something that Welsh people... Yeah, yeah. It's, apparently it's a word that's very specific to Welsh people, and it's all across the world. So you... Like Katie said, you know, you get a few beers down in there and you start... Anyone Welsh, <laughs> yeah. like, anyone Welsh you meet, you just become, like, best mates. It's yeah. so bizarre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there's a kind of, like, a feeling amongst people that, you know... But, you know, it's I, I, I'm the same as Katie. I love going back there. I'm very proud to come from there. Yeah, I mean, I, I still live, actually, two streets away from where I grew up. And that sense of coming from somewhere... And I'm from London, so that's even rarer. I mean, I'm a real rare mm. breed, you know, cut me open, I bleed the Thames. But it's like yeah. that kind of feeling of knowing where you're from actually yeah. really shapes who you are and you never really lose it, no matter where you go on to. So what's, let's talk about your relationship then. What was your relationship growing up? We've always been really close. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting. We were talking before we come in here, we were kind of laughing. Obviously, um, my my. Katie's mother and me, they split up before Katie was five. So you I have no memory. So of... You couldn't remember us being together, could you? So you kind of always, you know, it was, I used to go and get it when I could and, and all the rest did. And we were always, we always got on very well. I, I do think what I, where I sli- found, sound slightly old fashioned is that I always want to be her father. You know, I, I, I always see people saying, oh, so my daughter or my son's my best friend. And I always remember my father saying to me, I'm not your best friend, I'm your father. <laughs> there's a difference. And I like that because, you know, he would say to me when he needed to tell me something, you know, and, and he was quite right in doing that. And I still I have a little bit of that with Katie. She made me laugh really wrong where if she orders a pint of Stella for Adam and say, I'll go, what was this bit say, why are you drinking a pint? <laughs> this was a bit strong. And I'm like, Dad, drink, women drink pints now. It's all right. <laughs> I'm not going to start any fights with somebody. Said, Didn't you want a vodka or a wine? Like, no, I'll have my pint and I'll drink it quicker than you. Yeah, and she can. So there's little moments like that we have, which is quite, you know, quite funny, really. So, Kate, Katie, what, in what instances then has is your, is your dad been your dad, even when you've perhaps wanted him to be your friend? What's Is he very protective? Kind of just says, like, I've been there, I've done it, I'm going to let you crack on, but I'll be here to help you afterwards. I feel like the laptop incident. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> With a laptop, I, I got her a laptop because she was starting to do really well with a DJ. So she bumped it, something happened to it, it wasn't working. I didn't drop it though. She didn't drop it. But I was like, well, you must have. And I was like, I don't mind, just say you dropped it. She went, I didn't drop it. I said, well, you must have. I she didn't. Went, no, I didn't. I so we took it to a shop and the guy went, this has been dropped. And she was like, I haven't been dropped. And so we had a, a thing, but you still swear to this day you never dropped it, didn't you? I didn't drop it, I genuinely didn't. <laughs> I, I, th- I think I put like a hairbrush on top of it. There you go. Put a hairbrush I didn't drop it. <laughs> Johnny, was your father strict, stricter than you are as a father? Um, yeah, definitely. Very different. I was just, I was thinking the other day, the first festival I ever went to, music festival, I was 15, which is quite young when you think of it. And I couldn't get home. And I hitchhiked home, I remember. And I got in about four o'clock in the morning in the rain and I was really cold. And it didn't cross my mind to try to ring my father to pick me up. Wouldn't have crossed my mind because it would have been so alien to him. He'd have gone, what are you talking about? You're 15, you, you, you do your thing. And I remember years later, Katie being at a club in Cardiff, and my father went to get her at five o'clock in the morning. Did a 50 mile round trip. Then got a McDonald's breakfast. <laughs> I was like, so he, 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 was, he was definitely softer in that respect with Katie. He, he was really, really good on advice, Eliza, that I realised. And he's passed away now. He passed away yeah. four or five years ago. I really liked him. He was, he was a good guy. You would have liked him as well. He was funny and he had great timing. If he was born in this generation, I definitely think we've got what we've done from him and, my, and his father, my grandfather. My grandfather was a semi-professional singer. He used to sing oh, really? on radio in Wales. And yeah, he was really good. His name was Gwyn. And my father had 
perfect timing, didn't he, telling the stories and stuff. But in his generation, after the Second World War, they just went to work in the, in the pits and the steelworks. But he was very funny, great musical taste. But he used to do things, it's really interesting, like, he, used to, so, he used to say to me, make your bed in the morning, first thing you do. When you wake up, make your bed. So I go, and he'd say, make your bed before you go and make my bed. And then you know, you'd have a wash, he'd say, and he'd say, always put clean pants on, clean shirt, change your trousers once a week, your jumpers, change me. So he had very specific things he'd say to me. And it's really interesting. I was reading something about like um, how they treat people, you know, with sort of mental health issues and things like that. And one of the things they talk about is is making your bed, you know, sort of yeah. starting Being the day. Clean, tidy room, yeah, tidy yeah, yeah, yeah. routine. So I realised he must have, yeah. yeah, he must have impacted things on me. Um, without thinking it. It was funny because he never raised his voice at me, never gave me a row. Once in about 18, 19 years, yeah. 19 years. It sounds like a remarkable man. And I, I wondered actually then we could just talk about, um, Katie, you're a member of Generation Z, Z, who who are evolving as a generation. Uh, arguably, you've been the most impacted negatively by COVID lockdown. You've, you are a much more activist political generation obviously you've lived a lot of your adolescence on social media and you're questioning sort of social gender sexual norms do you feel part of that generation that sort of stereotype of that generation or do you do you not at all I yeah I, th- I feel like I have the same views and I accept a lot more than maybe what my grandparents would do you know like them with non-binary and like terms of people's genders how people identify I just say it not you know just pick it up naturally and say it Whereas I feel like my grandmother would probably take it a lot more to get used to that and you would say to her, you can't say that, can't say that. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and is that, a, is that a source of confusion or conflict in your... No, we don't. I wouldn't... I'd say a confusion. Mm. Yeah. They're both pretty good. They, they, they'll take it on board. They take you, it on board, yeah. They'd... If you say to them, they listen to you, don't they? There's no, like, malicious intent when, when they do it. It's just... So I don't see, you know, I don't shout at them or give them morale. I just say, come on, no, you can't say that. Yeah, that's it. That's what you do with them. I always think that great saying that the past's a different country. They do things differently there. Mm-hmm. And it is true, you know, it's my father and my grandfather's generation was, and I was talking about somebody the other day, you know, and it's brilliant on Strictly Come Dancing, you know, a couple dancing, same-sex couples. But, you know, homosexuality was illegal. Until 1967, you know, it's quite shocking when you say that to people. You know? Yeah, it just seems yeah. like a different it's lifetime, a different world, really. You know, and 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 I actually think sometimes we 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 talk ourselves down. We've, we've got to a pretty good place, you know, certainly yeah. compared to when I was growing up and just before I was born when it, it was illegal. So it's lots yeah. of work to be. And actually, done. I think it was only decriminalised in Scotland in 1980, 1981. I'd have to check that. That's astonishing. This is all very yeah. re- recent um, stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. so both of you are are in the media industry. How how do you see your your careers evolving? Because you're two different generations that are going to have very different experiences of of the media. Johnny, I, mean, I, I I I I kind of like I realize how lucky and blessed I am to end up doing what I'm doing. If somebody had told me when I was sixteen what I'd end up doing, I would have been astonished. So I, I really really appreciate where I've ended up. I think what's the difference in the dynamic between me and Katie is Katie's done extraordinarily well, much younger than, than I did. Uh, and, and I had that moment when she said, well, I'm going to be a DJ dad, you know, we go, okay, well, you know, that's, that's a really difficult profession, but she's, she's done so well with it. And I'm a bit like, well, you know what, you've obviously got a good work ethic, but we were talking earlier on, you always believed that you were going to go this way. And I think it's because you were always surrounded by me and your mother being involved in media work, I suppose, wasn't it? Yeah, I grew up watching, I've like my mother, she was an actress in like the 90s 
my dad, you know, and that was an actor, and then evolved into film production and radio. Then Vicky's um, an actress as well. So I've been surrounded by those kind of people, and I've always looked up to them. And I did want to be an actress. I did musical theatre, but I can't sing, I can't dance, I can't act. <laughs> There's a problem there. <laughs> so I was like, ah. But I love music and I love talking, so I feel like I've been very fortunate as well and blessed. Let's finish then by asking you a series of firsts that will have undoubtedly shaped your adolescence and youth. So, Johnny, let's start with you. What was your first job and what did you get paid? Uh, my first job was a part-time job. I was working in a superstore called Texas and I was on the princely sum of uh, £35 for the Sunday. Not bad, is it? That's pretty good. Katie, what about you? My first job was... I used to do kids' parties and I'd dress up as Elsa or like a minion. I remember this. That is or hard. Oh, honestly, like... Do you remember the little girl who went, you're not pretty enough to be a princess? She went, you're not Cinderella, you're too ugly. I was that. <laughs> and um, so I'd have to dress up as Elsa, Cinderella and like sing. And then sometimes I'd have to dress up in this big minion costume and all the kids would just come up and like punch you and stuff. <laughs> and I got paid about £25 per party That's... for about three, four hours, getting wow. beaten up and called ugly. Well, I mean, I would say that four-year-olds are the most discerning audience yeah. you could ever have in your life. And if you can basically entertain them, you can entertain anyone. So all credit to you. Like, I'd have to lead the whole party, so I'd have to like take them on an adventure. I'd have to sing to them. It was very... And then I even have to sit next to them at food time, and most of the kids would like be eating a sandwich and spit it out and put it on my plate. <laughs> I'll just be there, okay. So actually DJing in nightclubs is quite civilised compared to all of that. And oh, actually... all the drug that come out to us. Nothing, nothing compared. <laughs> okay, so next question. What, what is your first political memory and what do you remember about it? Johnny? Uh, my first political memory would be Margaret Thatcher getting elected and my father uh, swearing at the tell. <laughs> <laughs> to watch his language that's generally what I remember I remember the winter I do remember the winter discontent so that would be 78 but I, I specifically remember Thatcher doing the St. Francis of Assisi yeah standing on the steps of number 10 1979 where there is discord the, may we bring harmony yes. that's it we got this Welsh miner going effing what the how the hell has she got in and said we all finished now we'll be living in the garden in the tent well <laughs> arguably Anyway, okay, Katie, what's what was your first political memory? My first political memory, I'd say, was Brexit when the European Union was going on. I've always, my parents have always talked about um, politics, and they've always been heavily influential. But that was the first kind of moment that I was like, oh. So you vote, you voted in a referendum then. So how old were you when Brexit happened then? I remember you were really excited to vote when you first could vote and you were the first one in the stage here. You, mu you must have a political memory before Brexit. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember Tony Blair getting elected? Like when you were a kid? Vaguely. But I feel like that was the one that really like yeah. stood out to me. I, I was like, oh gosh, because it was such a big, a massive thing. How did, how did your, uh, you and your friends kind of see it? I obviously wanted to remain and we were all a bit just... Because you were DJing in Greece and you were not into it. You might stop. <laughs> Frictionless <laughs> travel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was funny because you know, like my my grandmother, who um, I think wanted to leave, and then when we left, she was going, "I can't get my cigarettes now. I can't go to Spain and buy my cigarettes." <laughs> Did they vote to stay or leave? Your grandparents? 
leave. My father, it was the one thing me and him had a strong political, political debate on, interestingly enough, but he wanted to leave. Um, mm -hmm. he was, which was quite interesting because he was always a Labour man. They regret it now, though. Yeah. I, I, now. Well, he, he, he was, he was interesting that he didn't believe in sending for, uh, power further away. He believed in local councils. The local council knows the area better, he used to say. I don't believe in sending power further out from Westminster to Brussels. It needs to be local power. So I was a bit like, oh, I get what you're saying, Dad, but it's, it's more than that. But I couldn't, I couldn't budge him on it. Interestingly enough, I couldn't get him to move. And, and, and finally, what was your first flight and to where? So when was your first flight? I'm one of those people. I always, they always say to me that people lie about their first single and try and sound cool. Um, because my first single was uh, Summer Nights from Greece. But that's the truth. But people used to say, when, I'm, when you're in your teens or you're 20, you say, well, it was the jam. It wasn't. <laughs> it was Greece. And, and this, yeah, it was Greece. But at this time, sound I'm being cool. It was to Ibiza. I went on an airplane from Cardiff. I went to uh, Ibiza. And what date was that? 1988. Right, and and I, and I believe that you, your family used to, your dad was scared of flying, and you used to travel to Corfu yes. by rail and boat. Yes. How, how long did that take? How long did that take? Three days. Three, three days, days to get to Corfu. Funny, Alexa, because I always talk about it. People always ask me about it because it, it, it was a. I can remember standing on the deck of, of we'd left Bryn DC and we were sailing to Corfu town. And we were sailing on the coast of Albania, and we were on the deck in our tracks in from South Wales, waving to people, Albanians, who were working in like the fields, and they were waving back to us thinking, I was thinking, who are these people on a deck of a ship, Italian ship? I thought he was just too scared of flying, so we had to go across Europe. He finally flew to Ibiza, that's where we all went. We went on a family holiday when I was 16, and we all flew from Cardiff Airport to Ibiza. Wow, wow gosh. And Katie, where, where, when was your first flight, and where was it to? It was to Disneyland Paris with Nanny and Grandpa. All right, yeah, yeah. Okay, and final question. Um, as uh, you are both products, just, I may add to, to Katie, products of the 20th century, as uh, your children and your grandchildren navigate the 21st century, what do you think is going to be the key rule for life as we navigate the 21st century, both for you, Katie, and perhaps your children, your grandchildren, Johnny? What advice would you give? I really like the saying, be kind. If you can be kind, it's like it's it's sometimes the most difficult thing you can do, but I think it's the most effective. And I would say it to anybody really, if you can try your best to sort of be compassionate and be kind to people, you've got a great chance. Because everybody's fighting everybody, their own battles. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody's on their own journey. And, and again, we, we, we talked to my father, grandpa, quite a lot on this. I remember him saying to me, Life's difficult mostly, you know, there's good times, but it's difficult mostly. So you need to be, you know, make the best of it that you can. And uh, I think that was pretty good advice he gave there. And, and you know, I think to myself, if people can sort of be nice to one another, then it's not a bad start. Mm. Katie, what about you? So when you get setbacks, use that, like the fire in your belly to go further and do better. Any rejection, just take it and go go again. Well, thank you both. And particularly for not only sharing your story, but the st story of Johnny, your father, because I really feel like he's been very much present in this yeah. discussion. But it is it is fascinating to think about how across three generations your experience mm. of life, your experience of 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 community and culture and, and career have evolved, but ultimately there's a kind of thread, isn't there, of continuity in terms of values, um, which I think is lovely. 
Thank you to Johnny and Katie for sharing their story there. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Over the past 12 weeks, we've heard from film writers, cooks, authors, beauty influencers, musicians, and politicians. We've heard from baby boomers, Gen Xers, millennials, and Gen Z. We've heard from individuals drawn from different continents, contexts, and time. But one thing that has really struck me though, is that ultimately, of course, we've been hearing from families. Now, this podcast is perhaps guilty of promoting the obvious nepotism that runs throughout British public life. But it's also a podcast about family and relatives who take inspiration from each other, who respect each other's experiences and values. Relatives who are able to bridge that age gap when it comes to each other and those within their family. And I think there's a lesson there that we all need to heed when we take into account the relationship between young and old in our workplaces, in our politics and in society at large. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and of course, tune into series two, which is launching in the new year. If you would like to follow me and find out more about my research, please go to www.elizafilby.com. And you can also find me, of course, on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Eliza Philby. Happy New Year and see you in 2022 for the next series of It's All Relative.